Good morning. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, we're going to be reading specifically thinking about verse 9. Um, Jason signed me to preach this week on verse 9, next week on verse 10 of chapter 6. So it's helpful, just one verse that doesn't get too complicated for me. I appreciate Jace doing that for me. Um, Jace taught last week from verses 5 through 8, which he said basically, do not pray to be seen like the hypocrites, and do not pray with many words like those of other religions. And verse 9 begins with pray then like this. And in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus gives us a concise roadmap for prayer. Most prayers in the Bible are concise. Uh, uh, Jay saw this last week, prayers don't need to be long and drawn out because God already knows what we need, right? The Lord's Prayer is a model of concision also because each petition is a category for prayer. Uh, Jesus didn't give us a set, words, uh, set of words to simply recite and move on, as you see happening someplace, although it can be wonderful to pray the Lord's Prayer just as it's written. Um, Jesus intended more than that, though. One of the goals of this series here is that, as Jesus instructs us, we would actually use the Lord's Prayer in our devotions, in our prayer meetings, in our times of prayer. Not exclusively, but regularly. Not as rote recitation, but as a springboard and a guideline into intercession. Pray then like this, Jesus said. Now, the Lord's Prayer in the book of Matthew traditionally is broken down into six petitions. The first three are directed to God, and the second three are directed to us, to our needs, or from our needs. So, to God and from our needs. So, typically, it's broken in like this. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, you will be done on earth as it is in heaven, towards God. Then, give us this day our daily bread, Forgive us our debtors, we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. Today we'll consider our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So if you're like me, often knowing my sin, my fallenness, my failure in prayer discourages me from wanting to draw near in prayer. But Jesus assures us in the Lord's Prayer that the Father has brought us into his family as sons and daughters to fully participate in the unifying, the unifying purpose for all the universe, which is that God's name would be hallowed and revered and worshipped by all creation. So to get the full context, we'll read Matthew 6, 1 through 18. This all uh, hangs together. Theologians call it a pericope. This all hangs together. It's one thing. And uh, we're going to read that. Jace taught us last week this passage. Teaches us how to live out the Beatitudes or how to practice our righteousness in regards to our religious life. So three areas. Our giving, our praying, and our fasting. Today we'll consider how to pray. Hopefully you're in with me now in Matthew chapter 6. We'll begin in verse 1. And this is God's eternal word. Jesus said, 
beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have, you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and in the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word endures forever. Will you pray with me? Oh, Lord. Lord, we stand before your word, Lord, and we are exposed. But we're thankful you have a kind intention for us. Use your word to change it. Holy Spirit, illumine our minds. Lord, you know my weaknesses. And so do my friends. Lord, speak your word through this broken instrument in a way that brings you glory and helps build your church. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we're on a series on prayer, so presumably it's because we need to learn how to pray better. So what is it going to take to get you to pray. 
resource that Jace recommended last week, you may remember a simple way to pray by Martin Luther got Master Barber Peter Beskendorf, presumably, to begin a life of prayer. We assume it did. Interesting backstory to that uh, little book, Northwestern Publishing House gives us the background as to how Luther came to write his very helpful little book on prayer for Peter the Barber. Here's the background. I'm going to quote from the edition that the good folks from Northwestern pronounced, quoting, a simple way to prayer written by Luther to a very good friend of long standing, Peter the Barber, turned out to be more than a letter addressed to a man exiled from his homeland. In his desire to give pastoral advice to one in desperate circumstances, Luther expanded his message into a little book. God's ways are often mysterious indeed. Shouldn't laugh because it's not really funny, but it's like, whoa. Luther may never have written this noble, precious booklet, as it's called, had Peter the Barber, whose family's name is, was Beskendorf, had he not become intoxicated at a family gathering in his son-in-law's home on the Saturday before Easter, March 27th, 1535. <laughs> on that occasion, Peter tried to prove a boast of his son-in-law, Dietrich, a mercenary soldier. Dietrich had bragged that he was impervious to sword strokes and that thus he had survived unscathed the many battles in which he had been engaged. Evidently to substantiate or test his son-in-law's boast, Peter inebriated stabbed him in the chest. The stabbing cost Dietrich his life. Peter the barber killed his son-in-law with a sword. And it also cost Peter his house and goods in addition to his citizenship. Now because of Luther's pleas and those of the electors, Chancellor Franz Burkhardt, and because the public found it regrettable that the old man was found guilty by the court, pretty merciful group of people I guess there, Peter was banished instead of being sentenced to death. He found refuges in exile in Dessau. The old man needed comfort and the assurance that he was still God's child in spite of having slain his son-in-law. I don't know what you might be struggling with today to feel forgiven for, but I don't think it's probably not that. It seems he sought help from Luther, who, though very busy at the university and otherwise, did his friend a great pastoral service from which every one of us can benefit. Luther took time to write this extensive essay in which he offers instructions on how to pray. So that's what it took Peter the barber to learn how to pray. What will it take for you? Hopefully studying the Lord's Prayer will help us get started. So two points today. Today's again makes it easy for me. Our Father in Heaven is point number one. Hallowed be your name is point number two. Thanks, Chase, keeping it simple. Point number one, our Father in Heaven. In this passage, Jesus is hammering home one, uh, one truth that was considered scandalous 
or even blasphemous in his day. Nine times in 18 verses, Jesus says, your father, referring to God. This was almost unheard of in Israel and really all the ancient world. You don't find people in the ancient world of any religion referring to God as father. No one thought of God as father. Kent Hughes tells us that God is only referred to as father 14 times in the entire 39 books of the Old Testament. And then it was really impersonally. In those 14 occurrences of father, the term was always used with reference to the nation and not to individuals. Abraham did not address God as father. You can search from Dennis to Malachi and you will not find it happening. Jesus certainly was the first to make fatherhood, the fatherhood of God, so essential to prayer. Jesus calls God Father 60 times in the Gospels. And the only exception was one prayer, his agonizing prayer on the cross, where he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But before he died, Jesus prayed again and he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Calling God Father was the heart of the prayer life of Jesus as it was for no one before him. Jesus reveals God to us as Father. John 1.12 says this, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus, by believing his name, gives us the right to be sons and daughters of God. That's what he did. Brought us into the family. Made God our Father. Romans 8.15 says this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption as son by whom we cry what? Abba, Father. The Lord's Prayer reveals the triune nature of God. I like the way Philip Ryken puts it. He says, quote, every member of the Trinity is involved whenever a Christian utters the word Father as relates to God. The Father makes, his, makes us his children through the Son. And this Spirit enables us to call Him Father. We just read it. We cry out by the Spirit, Abba, Father. This is a high privilege. When Jesus was agonizing in prayer the night before His crucifixion, He prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible from You. Remove this cup from Me, yet not what I will, but what you will. The moment of his deepest need, in his darkest hour, Jesus spoke to God with great familiarity and tenderness. Abba. Abba is an Aramaic term, it would in the language that Jesus spoke growing up, it would have been, Abba would have been the term he called his own earthly father, as well as his heavenly father. Scholars tell us that uh, it is not 
a childish expression like daddy, but nonetheless is a term of familiar endearment. They tell us it's probably more like dear father, Abba father, dear father. I said Jesus uses the phrase your father nine times in this passage, but in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus tells us to pray what? Our Father. Amazingly, in our times of darkest need, deepest pain, Jesus kneels beside us in our deepest suffering and includes us as his brothers and sisters in prayer to our Father. Hebrews 2, 10 and 11 say this, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them, us, brothers and sisters. What is the deepest pang of pain, grief, sorrow, suffering in your heart today? Do you fear death? Do you wrestle with a constant feeling of failure? Do your past sins haunt you? and steal your strength away to live for God? Is there a current sin that humiliates and frustrates you? Remember what Jesus said in John 6.37. He said, All the Father gives me come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. If you are in Christ, you have a dear Heavenly Father you can go to, even in your deepest need, your greatest sorrow, your most guilty moment. And Father God will remind you of His deep love for you and complete sufficiency, and the complete sufficiency of Christ's death on the cross to forgive you and free you from sin. Go to him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven. Go in confidence. Perhaps you're a single person and you feel adrift in a sea of happy married people. It can be very hard. Your dear Father is very near you. There are many joys in marriage, but by the way, marriage is not always so happy. <laughs> Often it's hard as heck, um, which you may remember or you may have noticed. It's not like it's continual romantic escapades all the time. Uh, you know, a lot of times it's not so romantic and there's not a whole lot of escapading going on, if you know what I mean. Let's be real. Marriage takes death to self to a whole new level. The Apostle Paul actually recommends singleness. He said, those who marry will have worldly troubles 
And that would spare you that. Still, you may understandably be single and lonely. You may feel like a second-class citizen of the kingdom. You have a dear Heavenly Father to call on. In fact, if you're single, He has separated you to Himself in a very special, intimate way. Paul said the married man or woman is divided, but the unmarried man or woman is single-minded, is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, and how to be holy in body and spirit. That is a beautiful thing. Now, listen, I don't want to minimize the temptations, the loneliness for the single person are the very difficult job of single parenting. But in God's eyes, the single Christian is in an exalted position relative to the married Christian. At this point at least, they change. But at this point at least, he wants you for himself. Focus on pleasing the Lord and being holy. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven. On the other hand, you may be married and discouraged with your marriage. You may look with envy on the single person. You may wonder, how did I wind up with a marriage like this? Will these difficulties ever change? Or maybe you wouldn't say, well, I'm discouraged by marriage, but there is that difficulty. That old trouble, that old issue, that old sin that just comes up again and again and just seems like you can't get past it. It's a long-standing problem. And we wonder, will my marriage ever get better? I can tell you with confidence that yes, your marriage will get better if you will both go to your father in prayer and in humility. And why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you both go together to your dear father and pray for your marriage? Remember the one time Jesus used the term Abba Father? We just, we just talked about it a minute ago, Luke 23, 46. It was the night before he went to the cross in Gethsemane. Jesus prayed in essence. He prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Not what I will, but what you will. That prayer, if you pray it together, will transform your marriage. If that prayer resonates with you, then this afternoon, take your spouse by the hand, look him or her in the eye, and tenderly say, dummy, I mean, honey, <laughs> will you pray the prayer that Jesus prayed in Gethsemane with me for our marriage? It's a beautiful thing. 
You're not, you're not asking God to change your spouse. You're asking God to change you. You're not on a secret mission to get your spouse to do what he or she's supposed to be doing all along. And they just listen and pay attention to what you're saying. And I'm not saying they don't need to change. Don't get me wrong. I'm sure they do. You're each praying for your will not to be done, but for God's will to be done. And your dear Father will answer that prayer every time if you pray it together in faith. If you're married, say this after me. Father, all things are possible for you. Not what I will, but what you will. Amen. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven. When Jesus taught us to pray, the first thing he did was to establish the unbreakable bond which we have with our dear Father God. We can go with confidence before the throne of grace to receive grace and mercy in an opportune time because our Father sits on that throne. He's there to hear us. Now, in this passage, Jesus refers to heaven four times. Three times he refers to Father as being heavenly or in heaven. And six times he uses this term in secret. In secret. We are to give in secret for the Father who sees in secret will reward us. We pray privately to our Father who is in secret and our Father who sees in secret will reward us. And we are to fast in a way that no one knows only to be seen by the Father who is in secret and our Father who is in secret will reward us. You know what? God is in secret. He is in, he is in this secret place. Now, this may surprise you, but in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is opening a portal to us for interdimensional travel. You may think Marvel's Loki takes some crazy alternate timeline trips, which by the way, I don't know if Marvel knows it or not, but there's some pretty accurate theology going on in that series if you've seen it. You may think that C.S. Lewis's interdimensional world beyond the wardrobe of the land of Narnia is pretty cool. You may think Star Trek's transporter that can beam you up to outer space is pretty fantastic. You may think that Buckaroo Banzai is awesome because he crossed the eighth dimension. But listen, they got nothing on Jesus' prayer in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus opens to us this interdimensional travel through prayer. God exists outside of time, outside of the physical world in a dimension called heaven that crosses over and intersects with us, intersect with us in real time. 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16 say this, God is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. He is our Father in heaven. We often think of heaven as up, right? Jesus looked up when he prayed, and, and that's right, because by looking up at unreachable stars, God wants to understand the extreme distance morally 
that we have from him, the complete impossibility and inaccessibility of heaven to us. It is literally otherworldly. And yet, and yet, there is a way to cross over into this other dimension. Jesus came from the dimension we call heaven and made a way for us to get there. Through his death and resurrection, he paid for our sins. He made a way. And although we, can, although we, we can't rightfully think about God being far away in heaven out there someplace, that's not a complete picture. While he is inaccessible, he's also closer to you than your own breath. In him we live and move and have our being, the Bible tells us. Ephesians 2 says that in Christ we are seated. He has seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And we practice our righteousness the right way. Well, we cross right into this heavenly dimension. So when we give in humility, Jesus, is God, God, Jesus taught us, then, then it's like, you know, we're, nobody's looking, okay, I'm going to give them, boop, this dimension opens up, and I'm like, okay, here you go, I'm giving, and God's in there, hi God, you're in secret, how you doing? When we pray, not to be seen or going on and on to impress people with our words, it's like, boop, this window opens into the secret place, into heaven. And God hears our prayers. And if he hears our prayers, he answers them. We engage in godly prayer, not to be seen by God or others. The secret panel opens up and our prayers get beamed in to be heard. And if they are heard, they will be answered. And by God's word, we can actually see into heaven. It's very encouraging in our times of suffering, especially. Paul taught us about this in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. He, having related his suffering and his trials, difficulties, physical and otherwise, he says in verse 16, he says, so we are not discouraged. For though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. There's a condition. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transitory. But the things that are unseen, those things in heavenly places, those things in secret, those things that are across the dimension in heaven, the things that are unseen are eternal. And by God's word, we can see them. And by practicing our righteousness and faith, we can enter into them and cross over the dimension. And by prayer, can enter into that place with God. The reason we have the power of interdimensional travel through prayer is so God's name will be hallowed, revered, and worshipped everywhere. So point number two, hallowed be your name. Point number two, hallowed be your name. Although it's common to see this phrase, hallowed be your name, as an invitation to worship, which it is, 
but it's more than an invitation to worship. It is, it is a petition. We are to pray for God's name to be hallowed, revered, or worshipped. That is, that is the effect of the prayer, of crying out for that, for that to happen. We are to pray for world missions and against blasphemy, for the supremacy of God to spread to all the nations and for the evil designs of Satan to fail. The Carson explains it well. We have a slide for you, I believe, a couple of quotes from him that are helpful, I thought. D.A. Carson says this, he says, God's name is a reflection of who he is. God's name is God himself as he is and has revealed himself. And so his name is already holy. Holiness is often thought of as separateness. It's less an attribute than what he is. It, it has to do with the very Godhood of God. Therefore, to pray that God's name be hallowed is not to pray that God may become holy, but that he may be treated as holy, that his name should not be despised by the thoughts and conduct of those who have been created in his image. Hallowed be your name. When we hallow God's name, we remember that he is holy, entirely other and transcendent. This teaches us to fear the Lord and makes our prayers weightier. Michael Reeves, in his excellent book, Rejoice and Tremble, the surprising good news of the fear of the Lord, defines the fear of the Lord for us. He says, true fear of God is true love for God defined. It is the right response to God's full-orbed revelation of himself in all his grace and glory. Charles Spurgeon, who, who knows, how to, knows how to do it, knows how to bring it, Prince of Preachers, he said it this way, a couple of slides. It is not because we are afraid of him, but because we delight in him that we fear before him. Thine heart shall fear and be enlarged, says the prophet Isaiah, and so it comes to pass with us. The more we fear the Lord, the more we love him, until this becomes to us the true fear of God, to love him with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. So sobered by our Heavenly Father's holiness in holy fear, we pray for missions. But not for missions as in itself. We pray for missions that God's name be exalted in all the earth. And John Piper, who also brings it so well, he says it well in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. He talks about missions and he says this. He says, missions is not the ultimate goal for the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. So we're praying for God's name to be hallowed, and yes, it is good for men and women to hallow God's name, but because God is worthy. Hallowing God's name is the key to effective prayer, is that key? I know too often I can slide into a selfish prayer like James talks about in James chapter 4 verse 3. He says, you ask but you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. We wonder sometimes why prayers aren't answered. Sometimes 
God's timing is not our timing. Sometimes He answers ways we don't perceive. That's true. But sometimes we're not asking rightly. So that's not hearing our prayers. Again, John Piper has a powerful way of explaining this. It's a, it's a longer quote. It's kind of hard to follow. As for your patience. Uh, but I think we'll find it helpful also in this book, Let the Nations Be Glad, under the heading, Why Prayer Malfunctions. Dr. Piper says this. Probably the number one reason prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers is that we try to turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. Until you know that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. It is as though the field commander, Jesus, called in the troops and gave them a crucial message, message mission, go and bear fruit, handed each of them a personal transmitter coded to the frequency of the general headquarters and said, comrades, the general has a mission for you. He aims to see it accomplished. And to that end, he has authorized me to give each of you personal access to him through these transmitters. If you stay true to his mission and seek his victory first, he will always be as close as your transmitter to give tactical advice and to send air cover when you need it. The piper points the bony finger of the prophet at us and he says, but what have millions of Christians done? We have stopped believing that we are in a war. No urgency, no watching, no vigilance, no strategic planning, just easy peace and prosperity. And what did we do with the walkie-talkie? We tried to rig it up as an intercom in our houses and cabins and boats and cars, not to call in firepower for conflict with a mortal enemy, but to ask for more comforts in the den. <laughs> Boy, that is so convicting <laughs> and helpful. So how do you pray? When we petition our Heavenly Father's name to be hallowed, we are praying for missions and against the works of darkness. We are praying for church planting around the world like in Sovereign Grace churches. We're praying for our missionaries in the church. We pray for ministry partners with here locally. We pray for our neighbors and co-workers and families to be saved. So we're, we're praying, Lord, may your name be hallowed by these people in these situations. Strengthen these missionaries. We're praying for his name to be hallowed. On the other hand, we pray and speak against those supposed Bible teachers who undermine the integrity of Scripture. We pray against the blasphemies that pervert the roles of gender designed to express the nature of God. We pray against the culture of death that kills unborn children conceived in the image of God. We pray against the agnostic and atheistic curriculums in our schools. We pray against pornography that dehumanizes and objectivizes the body made in the image of God. We pray against the so, so common vulgarity, profanity, and blasphemy in everyday speech around us. 
pray them this way, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now while we're on the subject, why is common profanity so bad? I mean, I think we're really clear taking God's name in vain is hurtful, attack against God. But why is profanity so bad? Well, it is ultimately, its ultimate purpose is to throw off God's rule and profane his image. The cultural theorist Philip Reif calls profanities and blasphemies along with things like some forms of art, pornography, abortion, he calls them death works. Reef says death works are an all-out assault upon something vital to the established culture. So God creates a culture of life where he's glorified and exalted, lifted up, where people are respected because they're made in his image. These death works and their various forms try to attack that and tear that down to bring death where there's life. Sadly, the most common profanity that takes God's wonderful holy gift of marital intimacy that we hear so often and makes it a violence. If you notice, it's not enough to say it once. It kind of loses its shock value. And so the person say it twice or three or four times in a row and add it, make it an adjective and over and over and over. Because the profaner is becoming cauterized and hardened. It just has to go more and more and more to, to be an authentic person who rejects ultimately God. And it dulls the hearer as well as we hear it over and over again. Don't be drawn into the world of profanity and death works. Ephesians 4, 29 and 30 say this, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth. But only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it might bring grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Guard your heart and your speech to guard to God and to others. Okay, so the final application today. Our final application is to begin actually incorporating the Lord's Prayer into our daily prayers, into our prayer meetings, into our times of prayer. You could, as Jace taught us last week, let the Lord's Prayer become a fence in which your prayers can run wild. Think about it, you could take 10 minutes for each of those six petitions uh, in the Lord's Prayer and easily fill up an hour. Or you could take two minutes and efficiently cover the whole gamut in 15 minutes. So it's a track that you can run on. Karen and I did that last Monday. We looked at the resource, A Simple Way to Pray by Martin Luther that Jace recommended. And besides being stunned by the adventures of Peter the Barber, uh, we pray Luther's recommendations together. I found it delightful. And it's helped me pray through the Lord's Prayer this week. So, your assignment, disciples, 
This is the Lord speaking to his disciples through the Sermon on the Mount. Let's try to pray the Lord's Prayer this week. Okay? Now let's pray now. Well, Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness to us. The entrance of your word brings light. Lord, let your word bring light to us. Holy Spirit, help us to cry out of the Father and to pray. Help us apply this word to our lives this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Well, um, let me ask you to stand, if you will. We're going to be, in a few moments, taking the Lord's Supper together. We're going to sing a song first.